Hello, and welcome back to the Itchy Podcast. Today's episode is the second of a two-part series featuring research from the April 2019 issue of Itchy, Volume 39, Issue 4. My name is Lindsay, and I'm the Managing Editor for Infection Control and Hospital Epidemiology, or Itchy. Today, I'll be speaking with authors of three articles from the April 2019 issue, so let's get started. First up is Darren Fasai, first author of the article entitled Antimicrobial Stewardship in Rural Nursing Homes, Impact of Interprofessional Education and Clinical Decision Tool Implementation on Urinary Tract Infection Treatment, a Cluster Randomized Trial. Hi, Dr. Fasai, and welcome to the podcast. Uh, can you start by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself and then tell us about your research and what you found? Sure. Um, thanks, Lindsay. Um, so my name is Darren Pasai. I am one of the drug stewardship pharmacists in um, Alberta Health Services. And our work um, started as a pilot at a few small sites where we wanted to look at the impact of education and a clinical decision-making tool on the um, rates of urine culture ordering and antibiotic use. And this stemmed out of uh, a lot of comments by my pharmacist colleagues and some nurses where they felt that antibiotics uh, were being overused in the nursing home population. And we delved a little bit deeper to figure out those reasons why and um, developed an intervention package to um, see if that worked. Uh, this, a lot of this was based off of the Loeb work that was published in uh, BMJ in the, the mid-90s. A large portion of Alberta Health Services is located rurally, um, well over a third of the uh, province's population, and about 80 um, rural-based nursing homes. So we also wanted to see if rurality had any sort of effect on this because most of the other trials that have been done previously were done in the um, in urban sites or in, in very large nursing homes. Our average uh, nursing home um, was about 40 beds, ranged from 8 to 112. And our intervention uh, consisted of on-site um, education of the nursing and sometimes um, other allied health. So places, people like recreation and, and physio. Um, we did academic detailing of the physicians and implemented a clinical decision-making tool. Um, we compared intervention sites to control sites and, and did see um, significant um, decreases in both urine culture ordering and in antibiotic use um, in the post period after the after the intervention. Okay, great, thank you. And can you speak a little bit about the importance of this study and how it fits into the broader knowledge that we have on antimicrobial stewardship in nursing homes? Sure. Um, so, in terms of importance for us to know is that when our results kind of aligned with the other um, similar trials, um, that rurality doesn't necessarily have uh, as much of an impact as, as we thought. We can do this everywhere. Also, that 
when we implemented the intervention, we did try to do it as much in a participatory manner as we could. So one of the questions we asked at every one of the sessions was, what do you need to make this work? And wanted to essentially use this um, building of ideas and understanding of the local context to better implement the intervention not just in other antimicrobial stewardship work but in um, a lot of other quality improvement or um, education uh, evidence is that um, if you can get people's buy-in uh, you'll have a more sustainable intervention so mm -hmm. we wanted to really make sure that the staff understood what antimicrobial stewardship is and um, then implement this in the in their best local context. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Uh, and lastly, what do you see as the future research questions raised by your findings or by the limitations of your study? So one of the uh, biggest limitations was in the chart review sections that the actual times when the typical urinary tract infection or a clear diagnosis of UTI was included on a chart was only about 16% of the time. Yet there is about 65% of the time when a urine culture was ordered in around the time of the antibiotic prescription. It left us with a gap of, is it truly only 16% of the residents who are not exhibiting signs of UTI or is it just not being charted that often so um, in terms of practicality what um, is the actual times when uh, the, the proportion of time that the residents are showing symptoms um, do we need to delve deeper into being more of a prospective study that way um, the other interesting part that we had in there is that we looked at impact on admissions to acute care or emergency and also at mortality and we were not powered um, to detect any sort of mortality um, in this but um, there was some signaling that um, we could be uh, there could be an effect on mortality in a, in a positive manner so we would like to maybe scale it up and, and do a um, a more powered study of antimicrobial stewardship, see if we can, um, if, if we're saving people's lives or not. Great. Well, thank you again for taking the time to share your research with our listeners. Excellent. Thank you very much, Lindsay. Joining me now are Brett Mitchell, Janine Karukin, and Philip Russo, several of the co-authors on the article, Reducing Urinary Catheter Use in an Electronic Reminder System in Hospitalized Patients, a Randomized Stepped Wedge Trial. Uh, welcome, everyone. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Uh, can you just start by introducing yourselves and then please describe some of the background for your study and then what exactly you and your colleagues investigated and subsequently found? Yes, my name's uh, Professor Brett Mitchell from Avondale College of Higher Education and the lead for this piece of research. Um, one of the things that we really wanted to understand was whether we could reduce the duration of urinary catheterization by a point of care prompt. And um, we know that one of the biggest risk factors for catheter-associated UTIs or CAUDIs is prolonged uh, and inappropriate urinary catheter use. So we decided we were looking at a, a point of care alert reminder for staff, um, which we hope would prompt 
clinical staff to, to, to determine and review the need for ongoing urinary catheterization. So to do that, we did a stepped wedge randomized control study in 10 wards in one Australian hospital. And we also undertook uh, a survey of nurses and also a focus group at the end of the study to look at the experience of those involved in the study, particularly the nursing staff, uh, on their use of this electronic reminder um, device, which was called a cath tag. And um, we did this um, step wedge randomized uh, control study over a 24 week period. And the main outcomes for this study were duration of uh, urinary catheterization and the experience of nursing staff in using the device. What we found was that there was no significant reduction in catheter duration across all the 10 wards that participated in this study between the control and intervention period. Uh, however, when you excluded ICU from that, uh, from that analysis, so it remained with, with just nine wards, um, there was a significant reduction in duration of catheterization and that reduced urinary catheterization by uh, 23%. And um, the reason that we excluded uh, ICU was that uh, importantly, part of the work we did around the survey and focus group, it identified that the ICU staff had a different perception, different um, care, clinical care practices to that of ward staff and, and um, really didn't see the benefit of the cath tag in their own unit. Um, and so when you took those out, we saw a very different result. And, and that sort of approach of not including ICUs is very consistent with what other studies have done in the past. In terms of the focus group results um, and the survey results, the, by and large, the nurses were very happy with the cath tag and thought it was a useful addition to try and help them with their uh, clinical practice. Um, they made some good suggestions for future refinements to that um, device, and um, we've passed it on subsequently to the to the owners and manufacturers to go away and look at. So I'll leave it there for a moment. Great, thank you. Um, and can you also speak a little bit about the importance of this article and why you feel it's beneficial to the itchy readership? Yeah, so I think this, this article uh, is different to other, air, other pieces of work in this field. Other pieces of work we've looked at um, reminder systems for um, urinary catheterization have really used things like electronic medical records or more of a manual type approach. And they also didn't do a randomized control study design. So this is the first study to our knowledge that's looked at a point of care electronic reminder. So using some innovative technology at the point of care and also using a, a randomized control study design to try and look at the outcome as opposed to quasi-experimental or other sorts of before and after studies. So this, apart from the results, it makes an advancement in, in our methods um, in terms of the approach looking at reminder systems for removing urinary catheterizations. And we learn a lot um, from a methodological point of view as well about some of the challenges associated with doing step wedge designs when patients are moving frequently between hospitals, potentially in and out of wards that um, may be part of your study or may not be. And Janine, can you tell me a little bit about what you do and how this study is relevant to your work? Yes, thank you. Um, so uh, I'm the nursing director for the Infection Prevention and Control Program for, for Townsville Hospital and Health Service. So it's a large um, tertiary referral regional hospital in North Queensland. 
Um, we were delighted to, um, to be asked to uh, assist with this research um, with Brett's team. And the significance of this is now probably um, becoming more apparent the more we uh, think about the results and the think about the impact that it had during the research and also afterwards. And I think um, two things were highlighted to us as a team. I've got a, a team of infection control nurses who collected the data during the, the study. And I think it, it increased the profile of indwelling catheters in our hospital, because I think our indwelling catheters are the poor cousins to our invasive vascular devices. It also highlighted some deficits in our processes and procedures. So it's actually spurred on a, a quite a um, complicated volume of work that we're now undertaking in relation to um, policies and procedures in relation to care of uh, indwelling catheters. It also highlighted um, how many times patients are transferred between wards. That was one of the challenges of actually collecting the data. Um, every day we were collecting the data for each patient and then every day the patient would be moving. So that's also highlighted a patient flow issue in our hospital, which is um, also being addressed. And I think the third thing is that the routinization of indwelling catheter insertions, um, we were quite surprised how many catheters were inserted and also how many were inserted routinely post-operatively with very little um, evidence. Um, we anecdotally questioned um, some nurses not uh, quite recently about that and they, they really couldn't tell us why uh, a catheter was inserted post-operatively. So that would be another, um, something that we'd like to explore in the future on um, just that routinization of indwelling catheter insertion. Um, it's important research to our hospital. We're a regional hospital, as I said, we don't often, um, uh, I, I guess, participate in a lot of research, given where we, we are located. So we were really, really delighted to do that. And hopefully we can uh, do some more research in this field. Great, thank you. Um, and then lastly, I'm wondering if your findings or the limitations of your study raised any future research questions that you'd like to see investigated. Hi, it's uh, Phil Russo here. I'm, I'm the associate um, Professor and Director of uh, Kabuti Monash University Department of Nursing Research. Uh, and I was involved in this study, I've done um, a number of research projects in infection prevention. There's a couple of things that I think uh, we can take forward from this study. Um, and in particular, I, I find it um, that, that there is a paucity of randomised controlled trials in the infection prevention area. Um, and uh, that often that's why we don't have very strong and evidence-based um, guidelines in many areas. Uh, but this, uh, this randomised controlled trial is a small step towards filling that gap in, in the research field of infection prevention and control and demonstrates a number of things, like Brett said, that the step wedge is quite a nice model and that these RCTs are, are feasible and able to be done in, in, um, in this area. The other thing that I also think that we can take from the study is the, um, is the mixed methods uh, uh, that we used in, in this area. And I believe that the qualitative aspect of this study really helped, um, helped us understand and informed us how to interpret some of the quantitative findings um, that will make it a lot more generalizable to other areas, um, other uh, areas of infection prevention. I think that sort of methodology is something we need to consider uh, more commonly, more frequently in infection prevention research. 
And the third thing I'll, I think that we can take out of this is that um, clearly there was a difference um, between from what we found in the intensive care unit and the general ward areas. And perhaps when we're thinking about interventions and certainly studies in the future, we need to consider um, the, the, the differences that um, are, com are clear between intensive care units and, and general ward areas when we're thinking about infection prevention um, interventions. Great. Well, thank you. And um, thank you all so much for taking time today to share your research with us. We can look forward to reading the full article in the upcoming April issue of Itchy. Thanks again. Thank, thank you. you very much. Thanks. Lastly, I'm joined by Scott Angelwierden, first author of the article, Risk Factors for Colostrum Difficile Infection in Pediatric Inpatients, a Meta-Analysis and Systematic Review. Welcome, Scott. Uh, how are you today? Thank you. I'm doing great. Great. Can you please describe some of the background for your study and then also talk a little bit about how you conducted your review and analysis and what the findings were? Absolutely. Um, so a little bit of the background. As many of the listeners will know, uh, Clostridioides difficile it's one of the most frequent causes of hospital-acquired infections in both the adult and the pediatric population, has been for some time now. And we've been seeing it increase in incidence over the last 20 years. So more and more people are having these infections. And in children, studies have shown that Clostridium difficile or Clostridioides difficile infections have been associated with increased mortality, length of stay, hospital cost, so it's important research focus to see how we can limit and better care for uh, these infections in these patients. So when we look at the adult side, we have these very discrete risk factors for developing one of these infections. So advanced age, certain antibiotic exposures, prolonged hospitalizations, and a number of other risk factors. These have been kind of well flushed out. We understand them pretty well. But in comparison, we saw that on the pediatric side, the risk factors for CDI in children is less well-defined. And this is kind of complicated by the fact that we know as many as like 70% of, of children up to two years of age will be colonized with Clostridioides difficile, but not develop a clinical illness um, before the age of two. So there's there's something different in kids that, that changes the development of the disease in children. And so it makes sense that risk factors may be different. So we wanted to look into this. So we did a systematic review and meta-analysis. We followed the standard PRISMA guidelines for doing a meta-analysis. Um, we looked at four different databases and pulled all the articles relating to pediatrics and Clostridium difficile. I think we screened just over 2,000 studies Ultimately, we ended up with 14 different articles that focused on risk factors for developing um, CDI among hospitalized children, which is what we were looking for. This encompassed 10.5 million children and just over 22,000 cases of CDI. So then we broke it down and did specific analyses for different risk factors. We looked at antibiotic exposure previous to development of infection. Um, we found seven studies. Um, five had unadjusted or raw 
um, crude odds ratios and then two adjusted studies. When we combined these, the odds ratio, the risk for infection was almost twofold greater. The odds ratio is 2.14. So significantly higher risk of developing CDI in kids with prior antibiotic exposure. However, when we take just the unadjusted studies, that um, relationship went away. So that's an interesting finding. We also looked at things like proton pump inhibitors as a risk factor, and those were significant um, risk factors. And then we found some that were not uh, significant risk factors. So H2RAs were not significant, gender was not a significant risk factor. And then in the supplemental table online, we did the systematic review and just outlined a number of risk factors that we couldn't, didn't have enough data to do a meta-analysis on, but are just found by individual studies out there in the literature. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. And can you speak a little bit about the importance of your article and why you feel it's beneficial to the itchy readership? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so our article gives what I think is a current and up-to-date understanding of risk factors for developing these Clostridioides difficile infections in pediatric patients. So it's kind of gives us where we're at. I think it's tempting to infer results from adult studies to the pediatric population, but we, you know, in the era of evidence-based medicine, we all know how important it is to always have the evidence behind any conclusion that we're making. So this kind of gives us where we're at with children, and I think it highlights some deficiencies where we need more information. And I think in other ways, it gives a few areas where we do have information and that can help clinicians use judgment when prescribing antibiotics or proton pump inhibitors to patients at high risk for developing these infections. Mm -hmm. uh, and lastly, did your findings or the limitations of your study raise any future research, any future research questions that you'd like to see investigated? Yes, I absolutely love this question. We, we found this finding of antibiotic exposure, but we had to include unadjusted studies in order to have any result to report. So I think our findings are subject to bias and confounding that comes with those unadjusted studies. And so I think this highlights a strong need to look further into the risk factors that we identified in the study to see if they truly are risk factors. So more, more research needs to be done on just how significant this antibiotic exposure is in children and whether it has an effect on them developing um, these infections. We also, in adults, we know specific antibiotic classes uh, that have ri higher risk. Um, I think that data would be very valuable to have in kids so that we could know which classes to avoid. I think there's a number of risk factors that didn't make it into the study because we didn't have evidence that could be looked at. Um, and then another kind of slightly different area, I think, is we focused on patients that were in the hospital, but there's community-acquired Clostridioides difficile as well that's become an important entity, you might call it, um, that needs further study and to look at risk factors for those kids that are developing this disease in the community and see how those are different and what information that can provide us. Wonderful. Thank you, Scott, for taking time to speak with me today and to share your research with our listeners. It was my pleasure. This concludes episode two of the Itchy Podcast. Thank you to Darren Pasai, Brett Mitchell, Janine Karukin, 
Philip Russo, and Scott Angel Weirden for joining us today to talk about their articles from the April 2019 issue of Itchy. And thank you to Jack Simchak for our theme music. I'll be back next month to talk to authors publishing in the May 2019 issue of Itchy. In the meantime, if you have comments and feedback about the Itchy podcast, please contact me at itchy.managingeditor at shayonline.org. Thanks for listening. Thank you.